Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. If you are able, please open up your Bibles to Jude as we continue our study. Jude, we're going to be looking at one verse today, Jude 6. And if you recall, this is a three-part series on judgment, judgment of the ungodly. We covered verse 5 last time we met in Jude. Today is Jude 6, and the next time we meet with Jude, it'll be in Jude 7, and that will complete his triplet on judgment of the ungodly. Every once in a while you preach a message that you know is going to be challenging, not only to preach it, but for those who hear it. And today may be one of those sermons. Um, you may have found yourself challenged when discussing uh, things of our faith, which may have been obscure, uh, which may be obscure to large swaths of the church or even to a tradition that you have found yourself in. You may have felt that way when Pastor Perkins brought us through the teaching of Hades and the local descent of Christ into what the Old Testament would call Sheol. Um, I'm always taken aback again by the Lord's providence in our scriptural readings and even this morning in the book of Numbers we read about Korah's rebellion and the earth opened up and swallowed them and they were brought down to Sheol how much more helpful it is to understand these um, illustrations of God's judgment when you understand what's behind these words. And so that is my prayer for this morning as well as we continue to consider what Jude is teaching us and warning us about judgment of the ungodly, that this message would then further equip us to read our scriptures better with more understanding. May the Lord do that. Let's uh, ask the Lord to help us one more time in this um, time of study and preaching. Father in heaven, we do ask your help this morning for we recognize that this is going to be a difficult message as it pertains to our understanding of your word and the world that we find ourselves in and your created order. Lord, may this message be for your glory. May it help your people to rightly divide your word and to give us a greater confidence, not only in your word as it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, but in our Savior Jesus Christ who protects us faithfully and who brings us through every trial on our way to meet him in the spirit and then in the flesh. Lord, we ask your help now by your spirit and in his precious name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today's message, as I said, is going to be part two of the judgment of the ungodly. Uh, the main topic is going to be divine judgment, but there are many subtopics, angelology, cosmology, hermeneutics, church history. The general objective, again, is for members of the new covenant to be comforted by God's protection of them. And for those who have yet to be reconciled to God through Christ, who gather with the new covenant community to be warned of God's coming judgment of the ungodly. And all of this is to be done by way of remembrance. Three headings, if you're keeping an outline. Number one, warring against design. Number two, warring against nature. And number three, warring against lawlessness. 
So this one verse will be cut up into three parts. Warring against design, warring against nature, and warring against lawlessness. One of the blessings of studying and reading a short book like Jude is that we can actually read a large swath in context. So even though we're looking at just verse 6, let us start in verse 1 and work our way up actually through verse 7, and then we'll consider verse 6 together. This is the word of the Lord. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own dominion, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, exhibited an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in Greek mythology, Tartarus is a place in the underworld. According to Plato, Tartarus is the place where souls are judged after death and where the wicked received divine punishment. In fact, it's a deep abyss that is used as a dungeon of torment and suffering for the wicked and as the prison for the titans. The titans, if you remember from your history classes, were the former gods in Greek mythology, the generation of gods preceding the Olympians in ancient Grecian thought and belief. I want to just read you a section from Homer's Iliad which intersects with this point. Zeus that hurleth the thunderbolt made a gathering of the gods upon the topmost peak of many rigid Olympus, and himself addressed their gathering, and all the gods gave ear. Hearken unto me, all ye gods and goddesses, that I may speak what the heart in my breast biddeth me. Let not any goddess nor yet any god assay this thing to thwart my word, but do ye all alike assent thereto, that with all speed I may bring these deeds to pass, whomsoever I shall mark minded apart from the gods to go and bear aid either to the Trojans or the Danans, smitten into no seemingly wise shall he come back to Olympus, or I shall take and hurl him into murky Tartarus. Far, far away, where is the deepest gulf beneath the earth, the gates whereof are of iron, and the threshold of bronze, as far beneath Hades, as heaven is above the earth. Then shall ye know how far the mightiest am I of all the gods. So saith Zeus in Greek mythology in Homer's book, the Iliad, book 8, if you wanted to look it up later. So what is the point? Why am I reading you Homer's Iliad? Because is this just the fanciful conceptions of a very fertile mind? Are these just stories that were made up out of whole cloth? Or is there some kind of underlying truth even in Homer's Iliad? Well, I think the message today will show that even in the outside world, to those nations who did not have the scriptures, or at least are not writing scripture, Homer's Iliad, by the way, as we all should know, is not scripture. 
And Zeus is not the mightiest of all the gods, rather it is Yahweh, the one true and living God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet I think you may read things like Homer's Iliad differently after you hear this message. Because I do believe there is some underlying truth. And that's going to bring us to our first heading, which will probably be the deepest dive in the three sections we're going to have today. Warring against design. Listen to what Jude says. Remember, this is the second illustration he gives in a series of three. If you recall, last time we were in Jude, the first illustration he gave were the Israelites in the wilderness. And how the Lord, and remember we talked about how it was Jesus himself who struck down the Israelites in the wilderness as a sign of judgment on those who gathered with the new covenant community. And yet, as the Apostle John said in 1 John, they went out from us because they were not truly of us. And so, Jude now is giving a second illustration. And let's read it at the beginning. Verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain. The second illustration that Jude gives us after the Israelites in the wilderness who were rebellious and who died there and never entered the promised land is one of angels who did not keep their own domain. Again, Jude is drawing us back to the Old Testament. Remember, this is all by way of remembrance. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down for the saints. Why? Because certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. They're ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you. So again, why is he giving these illustrations? To remind us, to remind those in the first century who he's writing to. And what is he using to remind them? The scriptures, the Old Testament. Again, clearly the time of the wilderness was from the Old Testament. And now again, he gives an example of the angels who did not keep their own domain. He's drawing us back to the Old Testament to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. But let's look at the word angels. What are these angels? Well, you may recall that an angel is a messenger. In our time in Daniel, we said the word angelos just means messenger. Now, yes, it is true that most often the word angelos means a heavenly messenger, a messenger from God, an angel. And they often convey news or behests from God to men. But not always. Not always is it a supernatural messenger. Sometimes it is a human messenger. I want to call you back to Luke chapter 9, verse 51 in the Gospels, when it says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, that is our Lord, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Well, guess who Jesus sent to Samaria? They were angels according to the Greek word, but they were simply messengers. Did Jesus send heavenly angels, a heavenly messenger, into Samaria to make arrangements for him? No, he didn't. He sent human messengers, human, a human angelos. But what is Jude talking about? Is Jude talking about human messengers that did not keep their own domain? I do not think this is the case. I think he is indeed talking about angelic messengers. And I hope that this will come, become clear as we continue. He's talking about angelic messengers who did not keep their own domain. And what does domain mean? What were they not keeping, these angelic messengers? Well, the word translated domain means the initial starting point. It means that they weren't keeping something that they had at first. 
Indeed, I believe this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Because in the original, or I should say the first example that Jude gave us, it was of humans, wasn't it? It was human Israelites in the wilderness. But now he's talking about something angelic. And so I believe he's going from the lesser to the greater. And what's interesting is that this is all what? To warn us about those false teachers who have crept in. Now, what do we know about angels? Remember, this is going to intersect with our understanding of angelology. What are angels? Well, they are messengers. Angels have a vocation. They have a calling. Angels are ministers with a vocation or calling. And I believe that's what the word domain means here. They have a starting point. And what does Jude say these angels did? They abandoned it. They abandoned their calling. Now, why is this interesting with Jude? Is because Jude's talking about those who crept into the church. And it wasn't just, I think, the laity that he's warning about. I think he's talking about leaders in the local church. I think he's talking about teachers in the local church that were teaching heretical things, abandoning Christ, abandoning the doctrine that was given to them by the apostles. These human messengers who had abandoned their vocation of being men of God, rightly dividing the word, shepherding the people of God, became, as Jude will go on to say, a stain in the church, a danger in the church. They were hidden among the congregation. Now, isn't that a fitting illustration if we're talking about angels who had a vocation and who had a calling and left it to warn you of these men who had crept into the church, who had a vocation and a calling and left it. But what are these angels? Who are these angels? We've already talked about what's meant by not keeping their proper domain, but we still haven't identified who these angels are. What is the context? And this is where we want to use the analogy of Scripture, and we also want to use the context, even the historical context of the time. As we've been going through Jude, we've been going back and forth between uh, P Peter's epistle. Second Peter. And we're going to continue to do that today. If you can, flip back to the second letter of Peter at chapter 2. Much of what Jude writes has parallels in Second Peter. So does Peter give us anything more? Does Peter give us anything more about maybe who these angels are? I believe he does. In 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4, I want you to read with me. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And he goes on to talk about rescuing righteous Lot. And how God can rescue us and to keep us if he can keep Lot in Sodom, he can keep us in this fallen world. But you should see some parallels here. Jude gave three illustrations. Peter's giving three illustrations. The same context in Jude is the same context in 2 Peter. Peter does actually give us some more information. He talks about these angels sinned. These angels sinned and were cast into what he says is hell and committed them to pits of darkness. Now, this is interesting because if you were looking at the original Greek, you would see that 
cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness is actually, I think, only three words in the Greek. But it took how many English words to translate it? And you would be further interested to find out that one of the words that is in that sentence, what is this pit of darkness? What is this hell? It is Tartarus. Tartarus. That's the same word that Homer used to talk about that place where Zeus threatened to throw the Titans. That place which is the deepest gulf beneath the earth. The gates were of iron, made of iron and the threshold of bronze. As far beneath Hades as heaven is above the earth. Now, again, calling us back to our study of the local descent of Christ, we recognize that Hades is a term that is also used in the New Testament. Explicitly defined as the place of the dead. And Pastor Perkins did an excellent job showing us the two compartment view of Hades and Jesus in the spirit after the after his death, descending into Hades and rescuing the righteous souls who were there. Abraham's bosom and bringing them to heaven. We confess it in the Apostles Creed. So now I want to add to this cosmology for us today. That Tartarus, this place where Peter says these angels are kept, this place where Homer's Iliad says is a place for the gods of ancient Greece, is below Hades. So what are we saying? Tartarus is the deepest part of Hades. Peter says that it is a place... A pit of darkness reserved for judgment. You may recall in the Gospels that when Jesus met the demoniac and found out that his name was Legion, they said this, Have you come early to throw us into the abyss? I would also argue that that idea of abyss is the same as Tartarus. A place in the realm of the dead that is reserved specifically for angels and demons. Is your mind starting to broaden with cosmological implications as it concerns the realm of the dead? This may sound foreign. You may have read Homer before and said, I thought this was all the stuff of Greek mythology. What is Peter and Jude doing? What is Peter doing using the word Tartarus? That these angels were Tartarized. It's a verb. They were thrown into Tartarus. Well, again, we still haven't answered the question who these angels are. And when do we meet them in Scripture? Now, again, let's draw us back to the context of Jude. Three examples, a triplet of examples. And I would argue they're not in chronological order. The first example that Jude gives was of the Israelites in the wilderness. Think in your mind of where that is in the chronology of the Old Testament. Now he's talking about angels. And then he'll talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter, on the other hand, uses a triplet as well. And interestingly enough, he talks about angels and Sodom and Gomorrah as well. But he doesn't talk about the children of Israel in the wilderness. Instead, he talks about Noah and the flood. And I think that Peter's examples actually are in chronological order. Let's read it again. For if, verse 4, 2 Peter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Example 1. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Example 2. And example 3 is here. And he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. If that is indeed in chronological order, then these angels would precede the flood. 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah comes after the flood. That is the analogy of Scripture, brothers and sisters, by which we understand what Jude is saying and give us handles on interpreting what Jude is saying. But it's not just the analogy of Scripture that we have, but we have the context to work with. And in this case, I'm going to argue the context of the ancient world. It is true that Homer is writing after Moses. Moses penned Genesis, where we find the flood, where we find Sodom and Gomorrah. He wrote these things before Homer. But Peter and Jude are writing after Homer. So it is well within reason to suspect that Peter knew of Tartarus from Homer or Greek mythology and decided to use it when describing these angels being Tartarized, being thrown into Tartarus. What you may be interested to find out is there are many stories around the world of angelic beings being imprisoned, being judged, just as there are many stories of the flood that pertain in the ancient world and ancient literature. And we don't conclude from that, oh, the scripture writers are borrowing from the ancient world. They're just writing things in our New Testaments because they're stealing from these other worldviews. But rather what we're saying is that there was a common worldview. Why are there flood stories all around the world from every continent? It's because the flood really happened. I would argue similarly, why are there stories about angels being imprisoned in Tartarus? in the abode of the dead, this deepest part of Hades. Why do these stories exist all over the world? For the same reason that flood stories exist all over the world. Because it really happened. It really happened. But there were literary works that preceded Moses' writing of the Pentateuch. And in those ancient stories, namely Sumerian stories, we have stories of gods coming down from heaven and doing all sorts of stuff. With that in mind, let us look for somewhere in the Old Testament before the flood that talks about angels. Now I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. Turn to Genesis chapter 6 and put your finger on verse 1. Genesis 6 verse 1 says this, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children unto them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. This has implications, and I will admit up front, has various interpretations. Not everybody interprets Genesis 6 and who these sons of God who came into the daughters of men are. Some believe that they were the godly line of Seth, merely humans who came into the daughters of men and bore children unto them, who became these Nephilim, these mighty men of old. In fact, the Greek translation from the Hebrew in the Septuagint Old Testament is gigantes. They had giants as an offspring. And some believe that that is just a mere idea, that we're talking clearly in human terms, and that these giants just meant mighty men of renown and that the line of Seth are the sons of God. 
Others believe the sons of God are a line of Susuran kings who were in the Mesopotamia area. You may recall when Abraham was brought into the land that the Lord called him out of, that he had a battle with kings from tribes from all over the Fertile Crescent. The Susuran kings may, may be they. They were the sons of God who came into the daughters of men. But I would argue, along with the unanimous consent of the early church, and by the way, the consent of the Jews, that these are not men at all, but rather angels. These sons of God are angels who came into the daughters of men. Well, do we have anywhere in Scripture where angels are called sons of God? Yes, we do. In, Jude, in Job chapter 1, starting in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So who did Satan come into the throne room of heaven with? The sons of God. The Hebrew, the Bene Ha Elohim, which means a direct creation of God, the children of God, the sons of God. Now I believe that there is a powerful parallel between, again, these sons of God who did this atrocious thing in the book of Genesis before the flood, evidenced by Peter's, I think, chronological account of his examples, with the daughters of men. They came into them and bore children unto them. And there's a powerful parallel between them and this lewd act and the lewd acts, the licentiousness that Jude says these false teachers crept into the church and were promoting this abhorrent ethic. It was idolatry of the body. Yes, this is, I think, the context for the sons of God in Genesis 6. Again, an argument from the greater to the lesser, or the lesser to the greater. These angels, these ministers who had a vocation or a calling, had abandoned it. This is a warning to ministers of the new covenant, as much as it's a warning to all who gather with the church. But we who are not imposters and thieves, those of us who are united to Christ in the church, the body of Christ, need to remember Jude's greeting to those who are the called, the beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. These angels did not keep their vocation. They abandoned it. But brothers and sisters, you are sitting in here and you belong to Christ, God is keeping you. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. The angels failed to keep it, brothers and sisters, but God never does fail to keep those who belong to Him. We are kept secure in Christ. But Jude has more to say, because they weren't just warring against their design, their vocation, their ministry. This ministry that they have, as Psalm 104 would say, He lays the beams of His upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds His chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes His angels, His angelos, spirits, His ministers of a flame of fire. They did not just abandon their vocation, their ministry. They were not just warring against their design. They were also warring against their nature. Look at the second part of verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. A contrast is now being made between what they didn't do and what they did. They did not keep their vocation, their ministry. What did they do positively? 
these angels chose to betray their nature. They chose to abandon their proper abode. The word for abode here, I think, is very interesting and very important. Oikotirion, which translated is a, de is a dwelling place, a habitation, or an abode. What did they abandon? What was their abode? What was their habitation? Well, you might say simply, they abandoned heaven. These angels abandoned heaven. True. True. You may be interested to know that there's only one other place in the New Testament where this word is used. Oketerion. And it's by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. And this is what Paul says. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our oketerion from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that, we, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. In this brief section where Paul's talking about tents and abodes, being clothed, what is he talking about? The Oketerion that he's talking about is the body. It's the nature in which we are born in. This human Oketerion, this tent, this body. What, is, what are the implications that the angels left their Oketerion? That they abandoned their proper, their proper abode. They abandoned their proper Oketerion. Brothers and sisters, I confess to you, I do not know. Calvin would say that this abandonment has, is like a uh, someone in the military abandoning their military post. But angels have more than a, a post that they had in heaven which they abandoned. They have an angelic nature. Some objections for angels being able to do what they say, what is said that they did in Genesis 6 is that angels can't have children. Angels can't bring about an offspring from the daughters of men. I remember what Jesus said in the Gospels. Amen. Remember it, brothers and sisters. He talks about the angels and says this, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, meaning us, but are like the angels in heaven. You see, angels, they say, can't be given in marriage. Just like we won't be given in marriage with our resurrected bodies. But one thing that is missed is Jesus is not talking about every angel. He's talking about specific angels. The angels in heaven neither marry nor are given in marriage. These angels in Genesis 6, remember, abandoned their calling. These angels did not keep their own domain. They abandoned their proper abode. Jesus is talking about angels in heaven. I don't believe he's talking about the angels in Genesis chapter 6. Remember the nature of angels. They can appear in human form. We have angelic messengers who went to Abraham and visited with him and ate with him. Peter says to entertain angels because, or entertain strangers because some of us have entertained angels unaware. The Old Testament has stories of angels killing men in large numbers. Clearly, angels can interact with the physical world. They can eat, they can drink, they can kill, they can wrestle, like the angel of the Lord wrestled Jacob and took his thigh out of socket. In fact, I think we see more even in the book of Daniel, if we call our time there. There's parallels to this. Daniel calls them watchers. 
And you may be surprised to know that the ancient literature is filled with stories of watchers. Now, I mentioned that there are intertestamental books that Jude starts to cite and allude to because he understands that his hearers, his original audience, would know of them. It may surprise you that the ancient world read books. They were not just, as one theologian says, staring at their navels all day. Jesus wasn't just walking around. The apostles were not just walking around without literature. They read books. And one of the books that the ancient world read was an intertestamental book written by the Jews called the Book of Enoch. Why do we know that? Because Jude quotes from it. If we turn back to Jude, I'll show you the quote. Verse 14, it was also about these men, these false teachers, that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. This idea of the Lord coming with ten thousands of his holy ones is a direct quote from the book of Enoch, a book that was written and accessible to the Lord, to the apostles, to all those in the ancient world. And Jude quotes from it. It may interest you to know that Jude also talks about the watchers in Genesis 6. I've read for you intertestamental works before in our time in Daniel. We looked at Maccabees which was very helpful to give us a historical context. And I just want to read for you one section out of the book of Enoch. When the sons of men had multiplied in those days, beautiful and comely daughters were born to them, and the watchers, the sons of heaven, saw them and desired them, and they said to one another, Come, let us choose for ourselves wives from the daughters of men, and let us beget children for ourselves. Skipping forward, these and all the others with them took for themselves wives from among them, such as they chose, and they began to go into them and to defile themselves through them and to teach them sorcery and charms and to revel to them, to reveal to them the cutting of roots and plants. And lastly, and the sons of men made for themselves and for their daughters, and they transgressed and led the holy ones astray. And there was much godlessness on the earth, and they made their way desolate. Brothers and sisters, this is the context for why I believe the flood happened. The Lord was bringing judgment on the ancient world for what these sons of God did with the daughters of men, namely, produced for themselves an offspring that were demonic. This is, the, this is the, one of the examples Peter gives us. Again, this is a sermon that's going to leave probably more questions than answers, and I've had the, the blessing of talking to many of you about such things outside of the pulpit, and I continue to desire to do so. But this is just to orientate us to the minds of the ancient world and to Jude's audience so that we can better understand this warning to the church and why Jude would be talking about the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper Okaterion abode. And that brings us to the last part. After warring against their design and warring against their nature... We are now here talking about something God did. They did not keep their vocation. They did not keep their Okaterion, whatever that may be. But God, verse 6c, has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. And so now a contrast is being made between the angels who did not keep and what God is keeping. The angels who radiated the glory of God, the light, but are now kept in darkness. How ironic is that? 
Calvin again says, they, they not only enjoyed the glorious light of God, but His brightness shone forth in them, so that He, so that from them, as by rays, it spread over all parts of the universe. But now they are sunk in darkness. Yes, the angels are being kept for judgment at that great day. That great day is the day of the Lord when Christ returns. They had a privileged position, and they did not keep it. Again, compare, brothers and sisters, the privilege of being in the Old Covenant and gathering with the New. If the highest beings known in creation were subject to judgment, how much more sinful man. They are kept in chains, but we are kept in Christ. This great day that is coming, this judgment that these angels will receive, I believe it is talked about in Revelation chapter 6, verse 17, Revelation 16, verse 14. What do they have to look forward to? Judgment. Judgment on that great day. This is what the demon, the, the demoniac, was saying to Christ. Have you come to throw us into the abyss before the appointed time? These chains that these angels are held in are a temporal chain. Looking forward to the judgment, but they are unbreakable chains. This prison is escape-proof. These angels cannot escape Tartarus just as we cannot escape God's protection as His people. Those chains are unbreakable, and God's love for His people is unbreakable. What a contrast. What a contrast. Again, there may be more questions than answers left after this. But I want to make an application that I pray will give you some clarity and will set your heart worshiping. These sons of God that are kept in chains were gods that are kept in chains, are God's workmanship. They were created by God. He is their Lord. He is their master. And they denied him. Just as those false teachers who crept into the church were denying the only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, we who sit here today are God's workmanship. Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. These angels being a special creation of God were His children in a qualified sense. But see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. 1 John 3, 1. Do you see what God's doing? We can speculate all sorts of things. Is this why Satan is so angry? That men who are below the angels would one day judge angels? What angels do you think we might judge? Could it be the angels from Genesis 6? Could it be angels who Peter said have sinned? God is replacing these fallen angels with us. Galatians 3, 26 through 27. Listen. Listen to what Paul says and think about what we've said up until this point. For you, brothers and sisters, are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For if all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, the angels disrobed. They left their proper abode. But we have not been disrobed. We have been robed. We have been clothed. And because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, 
Now we are sons of God. Can you see how something like that could make pride swell up in someone like Satan? But it still is incumbent upon us to hear the warning of these false teachers. Those who are in the church this day teaching false doctrine need to take the warning of the watchers seriously. And those who sit in the pews need to take this warning seriously and watch ourselves. Those who are called watchers did not watch. Those who were to guard the truth of God did not guard it. The exact language that Paul uses to Timothy to guard the truth, guard the deposit of faith that was given to you. We need to guard that truth. We need to hold fast the truth, the faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints. In closing, John Owen says this. When once a soul of a believer has obtained sweet and real communion with Christ, it looks around him, watches all temptations, all ways whereby sin might approach to disturb him in his enjoyment of his dear Lord and Savior, his rest and his desire. Let us do what the watchers did not do, and let us watch and keep guard to not only defend the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, but also to stand firm on it. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this message out of Jude. We recognize, Lord, that we have chartered waters that are strange to our Western ears strange to our contemporary ears, but yet would have been common to ancient ears. We have begun to set our minds on your word, and Lord, truly you have revealed to us marvelous things. Fearful things as it pertains to these angels who did not keep their own domain and abandon their proper abode, but wondrous things as we consider how you keep us safe and secure in Christ until that day, that day when he returns. Oh, Lord, how we rejoice that on that day we who are in Christ, who have been clothed with his righteousness, will be able to stand. Not because of anything good in us, but because of his righteous, righteous account given to us. But how we tremble for those who have sinned against him and denied him, even angels. Oh, Lord, this is too much for us to even consider. And so now we see in a mirror dimly. But one day we will see even these truths face, face to face as we will see our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, face to face and be transformed into his image. We will be fully in communion, not only in spirit, but in flesh. Oh, Lord, how we long for that day when he returns and we will be forever with him in glory and on a new earth to enjoy sweet fellowship and communion forever. But until that day, help us to be watchful. For your glory and our good. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.